Just a quick note before we start, this podcast is all about creativity, but it's in the context of grief, loss and adversity and how that can impact the creative process. So it's not a down vibe thing at all, but if you are vulnerable, listen with care. Hello, I'm Sophia and this is my place where art and grief meet. We were talking what it's all about, how this step led to that. It is all warmth and enthusiasm to you today, dear listener, as we embark on episode six of Where Art and Grief Meet. The more of these episodes and conversations I have behind me, the more I realise what a mixed bag of treats we are creating here. I never have any idea about where these conversations are going to go and I really don't want to have. So clear your mind of any expectations, sit back and relax or paint or walk or do whatever you're going to do, but know that my hope as you listen is that you'll hear something that will resonate with you and help you feel connected to this community that we're creating here. My special guest today is Margot Tanto, who is the voice and the brains behind the Windowsill Chats podcast. Margot lives on Vashon Island, which is not far from Seattle and it's in Washington State. And it's from this tiny island, which you can only approach and leave by ferry, that Margot weaves her magic. She is an amazing communicator. She is a creative herself. She's also a facilitator where she puts people together so that they can realize dreams they didn't even know they had. She is a mentor. She is a teacher. She is many, many things. In fact, she's a a dynamo. I don't think that I have the words or the knowledge to actually do her justice. But I do know that if it wasn't for her, I don't think that I would be doing this right now. So it is with a lot of enthusiasm and a great deal of gratitude, actually, that I bring to you a conversation between Margot Tanto and me. Hello. Hello. Look at you. You're a picture. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I'm so excited. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here. Really appreciate it. Oh, well, I have to say that if it wasn't for you, I I don't know that I would have jumped into this. So um, your words of encouragement are um, priceless. And I'm glad I could help, uh, you know, kind of that's what I love to do most of all is kind of get people where they didn't think they could go. Well, I think that your power to connect is almost like your superpower. It's what I know of you the best. I've always really liked kind of connecting people or being a conduit. It's it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Mm. And I do I do know a lot of people. I wouldn't say I'm highly um, I'm an introvert extrovert right on the line. They're like my idea of fun is not a big party. It, mm-hmm. I might go to the big party, but I'll be hanging out in the corner yeah, <laughs> talking to me, a couple probably. of people with you, <laughs> <laughs> but I still do like the connections and, and uh, yeah. And you know, when you've been in one industry for various parts of an industry for cough, as long as I have, uh, you do end up knowing people. So it's really fun to connect. Plus you do see what just a simple connection can do time and time and time again. So why not make them happen, you know? Yeah. Sometimes the missing component, that little Lego block that that is required to make the huge leap, like what's happened with with me and this podcast and helping my project actually find a voice, if that's yeah. not an awful pun. It's very it's, good. It's some words and encouragement that um, can make all the difference in the world. I'm so glad it's, you know, you've got to own this wonderful idea you had, and I'm glad I could help, uh, you know. Can you tell me how you describe what you do and how, yeah, how do you describe yourself? Really, my passion is helping artists and 
helping them figure out how to get further in their career than they thought they could. And that, that for me combined things like product development, retail, wholesale, designing my own lines, my own creativity, um, teaching online, um, mentoring one-on-one, you know, always coming up with ideas, but I've done a lot of different things. It's been a winding path, but I love being able to, um, it, the thing about the creative journey is that nobody's story is the same, mm-hmm. any journey really, but some things are a little bit more linear, but, mm-hmm. uh, in my mind, creative is not so. But have you always been a creative? Like, have you always seen yourself in that space? Good question. I have, um, I was always the one from a young age that, you know, Margo, will you write this out because your handwriting's good. Will you make this poster or will you draw this thing or the yearbook editor and the the one who made my own Halloween costumes and my sister, although to her <laughs> chagrin. But um, my mom was an interior decorator or designer. Um, so we always were talking about color and pattern and what mm-hmm. went together and not not because she was it was a lesson. It was just because that's what she was doing anyway. So she mm-hmm. was sharing it. Yeah, it was around. Yeah. And my grandmother, too. I mean, that that kind of OG original creative, she needle pointed everything. She she needle pointed and um, embroidered all the time mm. or repaired like she always had a needle in her hand and it was doing something. And I, I was just thought that was so cool. I can rem- so remember my grandmother's hands. I can see them right now because she had she really suffered from arthritis mm. and, and and they, well, she always wore the same nail polish color. It was something, it had the word mocha and it was mocha frost. I want to say like wow. always the same my whole life <laughs> and she, or, you know, and she, but her, her hands were almost misshapen because of how big her knuckles had become. Mm. And I remember it became harder for her, but no matter what she, she just, it was her passion mm. to needlework, I guess would be the best way to, to yeah. put it under an umbrella. Like in terms of hands-on creative, what do you like doing the best? For a long time, I made things out of wire. I always have felt like I was able to express what was in my head much more easily in three dimension than Mm -hmm. drawing or drawing it. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can sketch, but I feel like my hand is very light. But if I did made the same thing out of wire, I I, it did exactly what I wanted it to do. So I did wire for a long time. I even had a little that's how I broke into um, somebody represented me doing that. I I, that's how I learned a lot about how to work with other artists. But um, so I did that. And then I finally found the right um, person to to learn jewelry making from. I'd tried earlier and, and learned from a very, very. German, very specific, mathematically correct person, which is the opposite of me. <laughs> um, and then ha- the hat making also was new, but something I've all my entire life, excuse me, <clears throat> I've wanted to do mm-hmm. always and found the right teacher during COVID online. So I can see, I really, really am fascinated by that. I'm not so much a sewer, um, but something that I can do and finish and have that sort of gratification fairly quickly mm-hmm. um but usually three-dimensional manifesting things in three dimensions i find also fulfills another because there's that tactile element it's a, a much more physical undertaking when you can make things in three dimensions which is part of why i love doing ceramics because yes. it's just so it's the malleable and it's you know it's forming and shaping it's it's something that gives you something else. It really does. And I, malleable is one of my favorite words. I love malleable. <laughs> um, but it, interestingly, my career really has been based around product development and, and figuring out what products we're going to make thousands and thousands and thousands of them. So mm. it's just translated to doing that in a, mm. in a different way. But it's rewarding, isn't it? To just all of a sudden, there's something filling space where there was nothing. This is really profound and I completely missed it when Margot said it at the time. She's talking about when you create something in 3D that it's filling a space where before there was nothing. It's the inverse of what happens when you experience grief, when there's a huge 
void where before there was something or that's what it feels like at the time so I wonder if there's something in that I've never thought about it before that where some of us anyway are compelled to create because we're really aware of an empty space that's been created and although I suppose the things we make don't actually fill that space don't make up for the void it's like some sort of compensation or counterbalance to something that's outside of our control anyway I thought it was worth noting onward so you were very enthusiastic about where art and grief meet and Mm -hmm. how those things interact so I'm interested in finding out from you um, what your experience of that has been and why did it appeal to you so much I I think there's very few things in our life that as humans we universally experience and and you know death grief in different ways is one of them and for an example i have a very dear friend who was just such a prolific artist and she's british and she was traveling to america and showing here and coming here every six months and um just on such a roll and she lost her mother it was cancer so it wasn't sudden but it was way too early i mean you know she seemed older to me then but she was probably oh my gosh she was probably in her 50 late 50s and my friend couldn't she she couldn't do it and she just i think her mom was her muse i think Mm. um because she was a prolific and, and and a wonderful embroidery person in England and teacher and and had connected her daughter to so many wonderful people and and I just watched her stop completely mm-hmm. like she just couldn't she couldn't do it because I think mm-hmm. it, every time it reminded her or something and I we talked about it but then we didn't also i just watched her still have massive creative energy one of the most creative people i've ever known but she translated it to her garden to her Mm -hmm. cooking to her home she i felt like she went inward like i don't have the energy to share this out to all of these clients and customers i've got to take it in and Mm -hmm. and do that and i think what margot's talking about there is a kind of pivot for survival where instead of suppressing the creative voice a person would turn it towards something that's more healing and restorative and that makes a lot of sense to me you know I was thinking because we were you know when I think of grief and death usually I think of the ending of a life however we all can think of the end of a something we thought was going to be different than it turned out being like Mm -hmm. A marriage definitely experienced that you know it's it's just like oh I thought this was going to be something that it's not and how do you come to terms with with that Mm. you know that your life is not going to go the way you thought it was going to and the realization that it's not necessarily up to you so how are you going to pour yourself how how are you going to live you know are you going to choose to be a better you than might have existed before that because i believe that's way possible i feel like sometimes those things that you thought you should have are maybe masking who you really have the potential to be oh that's interesting Mm, that happened for me that way for sure can you tell me some more about that sure i hadn't i had not even thought about this as grief i got married I was 29 and like really cared for this person. But part of it was I was 29 and I had not, I mean, I'd had some relationships, but this seemed right. There were so many, so many signs along the way, but I don't think I was evolved enough, nor did I want to look at them. Mm -hmm. Plus I didn't, I, you know, I'm sure I can make this better. (laughs) And I hadn't been around somebody who was super depressed. I had not lived with an alcoholic, all those things that then I I did. And the slow to me realization over several years that I, you know, aren't I supposed to be a mom now? And we're supposed to have this loving relationship because I was modeled that 
and that's not how it was going at all. Mm. And I, you know, helped him to have the career that he really wanted going back to school and all that. And I um, literally said to me once, you know, walked into my studio and was like, can't, can't you just pick one thing? And I'm like, no, I can't just pick one thing. And um, and how much do you not know who I am? <laughs> to say and that. how much? Absolutely didn't. We we never, that never should have happened. But, you know, to me, I made a commitment. I was not going to be, it was more the conversation in my own head about how I thought a relationship should go mm-hmm. instead of really looking at how it was. And, oh my gosh. And a dear friend said to me the day I, well, the I think my head knew and my, my head knew and my heart knew, but they weren't talking to each other. They were refusing and uh, a friend said, very creative friend of mine said, why did you, why did you marry him? And I, I said, I married for, I remember, remember exactly where we were. Um, I married for steadfast. And he was like, you, wow. you married for steadfast? <laughs> like, what about love? And I was like, oh, love, love, you know, <laughs> like, I, but, and, and I think as it came out of my mouth or as it came out of his, you know, parroting me back. I was like, Oh, that was dumb. Mm-hmm. You know? And I went, we ended up going down the street. I was in San Francisco to a little store. And I saw the jewelry from Janine Payer for the very first time. And she had a poem. She had engraved a poem in, in this piece and it was a roomy poem. And that goes something like have patience with yourself. Do not- okay. Let me tell you exactly what the poem was that inspired Margot on that day. It was by Raina Maria Rilke, and this was engraved on a piece of jewellery that Margot saw and loved. It says, Have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Don't search for the answers, which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. It's basically saying, you can't always know. And it's okay not to know. And it's okay to let life unfold. And what I went on to do when I finally was able to stand up for myself was absolutely the best and most wonderful things that I've achieved. That's when I started my own business with my mm. business partner. I realized quickly that the people that I was around creatively, I had way more in common with. And I let that in and I, I, I've I, never looked back. I, I just never want to feel that way again. Mm. And, and I, I'd so embrace my the potential that that would unfold and it would be like, yeah, let's try that. Let's do that. And I knew so quickly that I never I just was cutting off my own potential with Mm. thinking that it was supposed to be a certain way, you know? Yeah. So you really were getting in your own way or you're letting society's dictates we're supposed to be this. Really? Mm. Who says? Who are you in this? You know, it's who, funny. where do you fall? Yeah, I, I think I I grew up with society trying to tell me those things, but I never felt like I was part of it. Mm. So I didn't I didn't have I didn't dare to dream of what my future could be. I didn't dare to ha- I just didn't dare. I didn't feel like I could. Um, have dreams. But what I thought I was good at was facilitating other people's creativity. So I would mm. go and work on student films and I would I'd just do anything to to help other people realize their dreams. But mm. I didn't dare to have any of my own really that were that were really mine until mm. now. I'm so glad you are. You know, this is a universal conversation and it's so interesting. So, well, I really am so appreciative that you see it that way. And it's not about having the bucket full of rainbow dust and 
sprinkling mm. it everywhere. What it is is about being able to be authentic yep. and for people to be able to look authentically at what's happened, how that manifests in terms of, because creativity isn't just the paintings, it's literally how you structure your right. life. Right. And when you can examine what you're doing and why you're doing it, it gives so much more meaning to those actions. And I think so often we go through the motions of doing things without an actual understanding of what or why. And maybe the what or why question once answered, which is probably not a concrete answer anyway at any given point in time, once you've done that, you can say, well, I'm really glad I'm doing it or mm. I, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe I can pivot. Right. But the questions and the analysis and asking about how our lives affect us and how we are in this in this life. It's just, it's, it's so fundamental. I love that. And I think you touched on it using the word authenticity because it's not, there's no script. There's no, and same with the conversations I have, I'm interested in that person's journey. And when, when you've experienced the loss of someone, I feel like that's what surfaces right away. It's like, I want to spend my time around things that are going to matter to me mm. and not waste time on things that are going to take that time away. Yeah. But the biggest one for me was somebody that I had a great deal of love for who, again, suddenly died in a motorcycle accident. Oh, gosh. And, um, yeah, it was so unexpected. I just didn't talk to him. We didn't live in the same place mm. anymore. Um, but we talked, you know, relatively frequently and um, just hadn't quite figured out the dance yet, you know, where we were all supposed to be when and in life. And mm. uh, it was just so I, I was just overcome. And I was working in a very, um, well, I was working at Hallmark at the time, and I had a job that required a lot of attention to detail, a lot of details, me juggling a lot of things at the same time. I got this phone call. It was completely shattering. And and I can remember um, soon thereafter, because I, I was in a creative job, very creative. I mean, I was being counted on. Mm. And um and you quickly think then in your life, what the heck else really matters? What matters? What matters more than telling your people you love them or going to the people that need you or mm -hmm. whatever it might, wh however that might translate for you. But I remember going to this room, it had, it was all dark. I mean, it was, the walls were black. They mm -hmm. were, mm -hmm. they were upholstered. They were padded basically. There was no windows and it was just so we could pin things up in there oh. and ideate and there were, but it was very low lighting. And I remember thinking, oh my God. And, and the whole exercise we were going through was to me, just, I could have cared less. Mm -hmm. It was, it was about a paragraph of copy. It was a good three hour meeting about this one paragraph of copy. And I, like, how am I supposed to think that anything matters? Yeah. And this, who you guys, I, I, I think about things like, why are you paying the people in this room to do this job? Which just, I will tell you in five seconds what the copy should be. And is it really important? Yeah. You know, somebody just lost their life. I can't imagine what the parents are going through. And, um, so I, again, I just think we carry it all in different ways, but that one, um, somebody described it to me or I read it somewhere. It's like a, it's like a brick in your pocket. Mm. You know, it's something that you carry with you in some way, always and, and forevermore. And it changes and morphs, but, but people think you should be, are you okay now? You know, mm. are you over it? Like, mm. uh, never. Um, but it just morphs how it shows up, you know, just changes and, but it's there. You can, you can feel it depending on on the mm. power or, or where you are on the day or what the moon looks like or whatever. I, you know, I was, 
I thought about it. I thought about it today. Mm -hmm. Not because we were having this call, but because outside my house there one year ago yesterday, this young guy was killed on his motorcycle and Mm -hmm. there's painting all over the street now. And I just thought, oh my gosh, maybe I should go to Atlanta and paint on the street. You know, that that's the thought that crossed my mind. Like it's also about being active in the face of this great finality. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting way to put it. Active. It's such a great finality. I think in the face of the finality of death, the action that our society has put in place to help us with that are things like funeral rituals and memorial services and mourning periods and that sort of stuff but I think sometimes individuals need something a bit more and they need something a bit more personal and something that they create for themselves and that's where these absolutely maniacal desires to create or take a road trip or have a crisis or whatever it is the thing that shifts for you, it happens because you need some action in the face of this loss, this void, this stillness, this emptiness, something to counteract that. I um, I don't, I'm not a seer or a, a, a you know, a psychic or anything like that, but um, do you want to know what happened around that? Oh, you tell me and then I'll tell you what. Okay. okay. <laughs> I have, I didn't know that this had happened. And so I had a, let's see, Cooper was, I had a, I have a, he's 14 now. And so eight months old, probably. And this friend had not seen him yet. Cooper always was very easy. This night, he, what do they call that? Night terrors. You, you hear of them, right? Mm-hmm. He'd never had that or anything. Very easy. All of a sudden, in the middle of the night, he absolutely was screaming, 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 just so. And I remember thinking, it's like he's grief crying. I remember Mm. thinking like, I don't know how to describe this. I picked him up from his crib. He was unconsolable. There was a chair in the corner of the room. I picked him up. I went to walk to the chair and he he's eight months old. Mm -hmm. He let me know with his body language. I remember he arched his back. He was like, we are not sitting in that chair. I do not want to sit in that chair. I I remember it like, okay, you Mm. don't want to sit in the chair. It was the weird, I get goosebumps thinking about Mm. it. It was a very weird thing. So we went downstairs, we turned on the TV, crying, 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 crying hours. The next morning I got that phone call and I, I had a friend, um, a friend of a friend was a psychic and she said, you know, you should really call my friend. And this was like literally in the first 24 hours after this happened. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to call her. And she just, just call her. I, and I'd, I'd heard about her before. Um, so I called her and she said, he's in this in-between space. He, he she told me a few things. She told me a few things that were going to happen if I went to Atlanta, which I, I was like, there's no way that's going to happen. And of course it did. But she said, you know, you know, he came to see Cooper, right? And I was like, oh, yes, I do. I do. It was because he had passed that afternoon. Yeah, it was just, and I I had wished, you know, I think it's probably, maybe it's common for those of us who believe in that we don't know what really happens, but I wished that I could like feel that some other mm-hmm. time, you know, Um, but that time was, I I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's what happened, but he sure didn't want to sit in that chair. It's really hard to know what to make of it when these things happen. But I have my own story and I told Margot. When my brother died, all that day people were coming to the house, to our house. So even though my brother lived in Greece and my father was actually over visiting there at the time, um, our house was full of people who were coming just because they needed to come because Hector had died and it was such a shock. So everyone was in the kitchen and no one was in the other part of the house, which is um, like our house is double brick. It's very solid. But I heard an enormous crash from the other Mm -hmm. room. So I went in and I noticed that a picture had tumbled off a glass shelf 
And it had been propped up there with a whole lot of other pictures. So anyway, I picked it up, put it on a table. And later on that day, when the house had emptied out a bit, I went back and had a look. The picture was a childhood portrait of my brother and I. And I noted that the shelf that it was on had a dust mark from where it had been. But in front of it were these miniature perfume bottles uh, lined up as part of a display in front of the picture. So the picture to have not knocked over those bottles must have jumped up and over because the bottles were still in place. Oh, my gosh. Like how do you how how I, do they uh, let us know? Uh, I was and I kept saying to his friends when they were over here, it feels like he's here uh, because all of his people are here. Like it was a, a really odd feeling. And then sort of some hours later to actually go and examine that spot and see that very strange thing that happened. I'm just like, um, it, I can't. I can't explain it. There's no way that those perfume bottles wouldn't have been knocked over. There's well, that's just it. no way. And, and, what, and it was only that picture. Like if the shelf had have failed, all the pictures would have fallen. Oh, like, my gosh. It was so weird. Well, the, the other thing that happened that was um, very, very, uh, it gives me the chills to think about, was we flew straight to Greece because the family needed to be together. So I was driving my brother's car. He had Mm. this red, it was an Alfa Romeo. He loved it. Mm. And he spent a lot of money on it, but it was a, it was a lemon. It was just a, it was always in the shop. And he had actually only just got it back from being repaired like a week before he died. So anyway, I was driving his car and it was behaving very strangely kept stalling it was hard to start it was just I felt I kept saying heck what you this car you love this car but this car is so annoying and ultimately I got so frustrated with it that I decided I wasn't going to drive it anymore I just felt like there's something really wrong and I just I couldn't reconcile how badly I felt about it and I'm a person who when technology fails, I get very grumpy, but I never give up. I just persevere. But I actually just went, I've had it with this car. Like it's not, (laughs) no one is going in that car. So the afternoon after I decided I wasn't going to drive it or it wasn't going to be driven, uh, one of the family friends decided to use the car and the car was in a narrow driveway and George went to back the car out and my sister-in-law's mother came running out of the apartment and she said, you've forgotten to take the bread. She threw the bread for George to catch it. So he was standing in the the door of the car open and she threw the bread and it landed on the ground in a pool of liquid that was near that door. So George picked up the bread and then he noticed that it had fallen in this liquid and he said, oh, my God, there's petrol. Get out of the car. And the father-in-law got out of the car and the one other person got out of the car and it exploded. It exploded (gasps) to the point where it was incinerated in the driveway, a black smoking. And the thing was that he'd kind of managed to back out enough so that they could open the back doors and, and get out properly. But if it had have exploded when the car was further up, they would have been trapped in the car. It was just, oh and it was my. it was just the most extraordinary event. And I just can't help but feel that he was telling me, "Don't use the car. The that car's dangerous. Sure. Don't use the car." So that and, was, and he made it so every like he was like, "I'm going to do all I can to give the signs here. Like the bread's going in the petrol. You yep. you have enough room out, but." Either that or, you know, I, well, I don't I just, know. It was I'm somebody so was taking right care now of it. that I'm not here and I'm going to take care of you, but I'm going to sh- one more way to show you. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. And it was, amazing. and the thing was that if it had have been Michelle and my son in the back seat of the car, they would never have got out in time because he was like four years old. Oh like trying gosh. to m- maneuver a little kid out of a car in that situation, wow. they, they just wouldn't have got out. 
Oh my goodness. I just think to be open to receiving, right? Whatever the messages are, believe what one may. I find it very um, comforting, you mm. know. That- well, the, the funny thing is that I think that he would have been, I don't, he was of a mind when he was alive that he would say, it's not something that we need to spend a lot of time thinking about. Like we need to be present in our lives at this moment Mm -hmm. with who's here physically with us. We Mm -hmm. have a responsibility to our own soul to have a relationship with, with our Mm -hmm. spirit. But he would have said, don't dabble in things that are when the other side crosses over. I don't Mm -hmm. think he was about that at all. In fact, I think that he was like my dad, very much of a mind where we don't know it. We don't understand it. Don't assume that people on the other side know more than you do because it's just because they've had a journey doesn't mean that they're more well-informed or whatever. But the fact that there were a series of events and more things, but I won't go into right now, but all of these things that happened, I think were were related to him. I just can't Mm -hmm. see how they weren't. Mm. It's very interesting. I I agree. I mean, it, it does. It f- it laser focuses us on those around us that we want to let know we care because all of a sudden you can't tell someone else. So it just makes those that are here that much more precious. Oh, absolutely. Mm. So that was a bit of an unexpected segue into the supernatural, maybe. Or maybe there were just spot earthquakes and freak exploding Alfa Romeos and chair averse infants. Who knows? But you know, we're here to share and be open about our experiences and observations. And I'm really glad Margot was open to do that too. In fact, she started it, just for the record. I was just going to say creatively, I don't, you know, I just think that's why it has, it must be so different for everyone because we all deal with so many things in different ways. So how, how that comes out, I remember just because I was in a creative job, but it, it felt so tedious at that moment. Um, I, I think what probably I didn't do this, but I would probably have done really well with a huge piece of paper and a big brush and paint that didn't matter and just go to town, Mm. you know, just emotionally, emotional release kind of creativity. Mm. Well, also, I think you can be in a creative job that is tapping a resource that you have, but that's not necessarily, or in fact, it's not the same as expressing for the sake of you need to express something of you right which is very much where I think because you never like I was going to say you never question the relevance of your own need to express but I think people do I agree with you and I think that's why people are so they feel unseen they feel unheard they don't feel valid Everyone's creative, I believe, in, in, in many different ways, but just permission to, to let yourself be, to mm. let yourself tune into something that interests you and, and spend some time on it. Yeah. Best thing. Without so letting important. life get in the way, you know. I don't know that our lives necessarily encourages that. And I would have thought that we could have used COVID as leverage to have changed some of those things, like with people being able to work from home and restructure what the work life experience was. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the need to return to normal, whatever that is, has sort of crushed that opportunity. Yeah, I I think in the very beginning when when there would be all those Instagram lives at the same time and you could tune in and hear this person talking or that person talking or it was such a way to to be in in community with somebody else or just not feel like what the heck are we all going through and yeah. and yeah now it's what whatever normal is which we forget we we just went through something that will ne- it can't get back to the same as it was before so mm. what does that look like we still want to hold on to those things but yeah, well, it's almost like it's easier to embrace the devil you know. 
Right. But it's, it seems to me to be such a shame. It's a missed I, opportunity. Yeah. It, I was going to say it. There's so many opportunities. And I think if, I, you know, if we could all just remind ourselves of that and think of what was that thing you wanted to do, you know, or even, you know, in grief, for example, going back to that, that person's gone. I need to make sure I do this, you mm-hmm. know, to sell to uh, to celebrate them or to honor them or because it could happen to me, too, or whatever that thing is. Sometimes we in the moment, we're like, yes, I'm going to be this way or I'm going to communicate in this way. And and then we might not always. So it's it. there are gifts in the in the grief, I think. I know, I know it seems counterintuitive for there to be gifts in grief, but from my own experience, I know it to be true. And I told Margot about a gift from my dad that I could only receive really after he died. Because I grew up in a place where my dad was on this openly spiritual journey and I wasn't on the spiritual Mm -hmm. journey. My brother was on the spiritual journey, but I wasn't. And it wasn't part of what related to me at all. I felt less than. I felt like I wasn't as evolved. And good grief, that's the last thing that, that dad would have ever wanted. Did you ever talk to him about that? I kind I did towards the end of his life. It was really hard to talk about because dad, I think he felt like it was a failing on his part mm. or something. And I never wanted him to feel that. That's sure. That wasn't part of it. So that made it hard to talk about. But he wrote me a letter when um, it was 16 years before his death. Um, He was going to be having a big brain tumour operation and there was a possibility he wasn't going to survive and it uh, it was a very intense period. So he wrote me a letter, but I'd never saw the letter until a year after he died when I was clearing out his study. So in that 16 years, he'd gone through heart attacks. He had my my son was born. He had another grandchild. My brother died. All of these things happened in that period. But he he obviously never felt that he needed to change a word of it in the intervening 16 years. And in it, he says to me, if only you knew how lovely you are. Because I see it and I know that you don't because you have value just being the person you are. And it was such a gift and I could actually hear it because I knew. I saw how we were at the very end of his life and I could receive it and it was just, oh, it took my breath away. Well, and the fact that he had written it 16 years prior, not just because I want you to know this, he had, he had always known that. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. What an amazing thing to, to have. Yeah. And I found it in his papers, there was a box and it was in this yellow manila envelope. And it said to Sophia in event of my death. And I look, I had been through those cupboards and drawers and sorted and whatever a thousand times, and I had never seen that letter. Oh, wow. So it was such a surprise when I went in there that day, thought I've got to go into that room that yeah. is full of his musical instruments and his yoga books and everything, and I have to try and do this. And it was one of the first things I found. And it just uh, knocked my socks off. It was beautiful. Mm. What was your, in terms of when you were growing up, what was the environment like about talking about your feelings and and all that sort of stuff? You know, um, so my parents were both born in the mid-30s. So generationally not um, very kind of doing it a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so they talked to us, but um, it wasn't like a, for instance, my son talks to me. I like, I cannot believe what he tells me. I can't believe it. Like I would never, ever have had those kind of conversations with my parents. I don't think I would have wanted to. And I don't think they would have wanted me to. I think mm-hmm. that might've been awkward, but we could talk about things. I just think I, I'd talk to my friends more. I mean, they were always very, um, always telling us we could be whatever we wanted. Very, you know, very, the word's not, the, I still have COVID brain, I swear. Just always very positive about who we could be in the world and things like that. Not, they were never like, you can't do this or you can't do that. So they were kind of open in that way. But as far as the life details, um, in my 20s, I realized like they hadn't even been communicating with each other. Mm. So, um it was, uh, I felt like it was kind of appropriate for the time for having parents that grew up when they did. I felt like the communication sort of fit that era. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that um, my kiddo will tell me, I just like, I'm going to just <laughs> pretend that that did not just completely surprise me. But okay, <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> what was your house like? Was it very my, well, I, my parents are completely polar opposite. So my dad absolutely loved talking about everyone in his family, everyone who had died, who I never met, I might as well have met because I heard so many stories about them. Oh, that's cool. And then yeah. my mum, she very rarely would talk about her childhood and, you know, she'd say, you can't waste that because, you know, from when I was a child, we'd make use of everything where you'd hear those things, but yeah. you wouldn't hear the nitty gritty details of events that were really, um, that really marked her life. I don't want to overstep by telling you my mum's story when really it's hers to tell and she can do so if she chooses. But what I will say in the context of being her child and what I've observed is that when she came here as a seven-year-old migrant, things were not easy. Uh, It was the early 1950s and I think diversity was something that wasn't embraced and there were aspects of that childhood that were traumatic. You know, it's the whole thing about how grief and loss stays with you. You just have to find a different way to exist with that brick in your pocket. I think for all of us, when we go through something like that, I don't know, we're not, and maybe it's, it's generational too, but I'm, I'm not the best at like telling everybody all about it. I need to go inside and Mm. deal with it. I think to be with yourself and Mm sit in the space that you've created and actually examine it not with a judgmental eye but with a, a with an inquiring mind that is full of love so mm. that like you do for your best friend yeah you never view what your best friend's doing with a harsh kind of judgmental eye because you have an understanding of them you know them and you love them so you're kind to them and we need to turn that back onto ourselves and not um, and be able to analyze what we're doing with that sense of love and lack of judgment so that we can make good choices moving onward. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I'm going to wind us up and say thank you so much for being here with me and sharing your thoughts and also your cheerleading because it's made the world of difference to me. Oh, thank you. It's an honor. I'm so, so deeply glad that you're doing this. And I, it's just an honor for me to be part of the conversation. Well, I'm thank so you. glad you are. I think you're going to be an ongoing part of the conversation, actually, even if it's not I, on air. <laughs> I would love to be. So there you have it. Margot Tanto from windowsill chats podcast and tanto studios i will put links in the show notes so you can find her and reap the benefits of her as a resource and a knowledge base amazing so grateful for her thank you for being on the show to blue ant 
who have provided me with the Streamex microphones and the Zonex headset, which I use to record and mix. Dallas Cosmos, my super talented cousin, thank you so much again for the use of Good Goodbye, a track from his 2016 LP called The Memory Keys. I love it. If you would like to support Where Art and Grief Meet as a project, you're going to find all the information about it that you could possibly want on my website, which is sofansun.com. There is a link in the show notes. And you can also search Patreon for Where Art and Grief Meet if you would like to become a patron, which I would so greatly appreciate. My daily art practice is documented on Instagram at sofcosmos underscore art. And you can find what I am creating there on a daily basis. And if you want to share feedback or if you want to talk about Where Art and Grief Meet to your friends, I would appreciate the ever-expanding Where Art and Grief Meet universe. So please know that I'm open to receive feedback. I love feedback. And thank you, dear listener, for once again joining me and being present as we close episode six. So until next time, when I'm talking to special guest, internationally acclaimed artist Marina Strocky, with whom I was a little bit of an awestruck fangirl, it's a good goodbye from me. Where Art and Grief Meet is a Soap and Sun production produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge their continuing contribution to Australian culture.